Welcome to episode 9 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. Browsing the racks at the local record store one day, I met Scooter, a stringy-haired older boy in a merciful fate t-shirt with narrow eyes and a hard expression. Inevitably, we began to discuss metal as we poured over the selection of tapes. Do you think the guys in Slayer are really satanic, or do you think it's just a put-on? I asked my new friend. Hmm, I don't know, considered Scooter. I mean, they do have a tape called Haunting the Chapel. That's pretty satanic, he reasoned. Scooter and I discovered that we lived only two blocks apart, and he offered to accompany me home. You can ride my pegs, he said, motioning to his bike outside. No thanks, I said. I was afraid to ride bicycle pegs. Let's just walk. Perhaps sensing my apprehension, Scooter dutifully walked his bike home alongside me as we continued our conversation. On the way, Scooter lit a cigarette. I didn't know any kids who smoked cigarettes. Those things will mess you up, man, I said, trying my best to not sound like McGruff the crime-fighting dog. I'm already messed up, said Scooter. As we approached Sycamore Street, Scooter produced a sharpie from his jeans and wrote CS1 on the small fire alarm box affixed to the telephone pole. What's CS1? I asked him, naively. That's my tag, Scooter said, matter-of-factly. Oh, I said. Suddenly, I wanted a tag, too. As my favorite band on that particular day was Nuclear Assault, I decided on the spot that I would henceforth be known as Nuke. N-U-K-E. I gave little thought as to how I might render this signature on mailboxes and overpasses all over the neighborhood, but I was eager to begin making up for lost time. Graffiti wasn't the only bad influence Scooter had on me. In United States elementary schools during the 80s, there was a popular educational program called D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education. The concept behind D.A.R.E. was simple. As part of the so-called War on Drugs, Local police officers would visit various schools to warn students of the dangers of drugs. Often, they would ask the students to sign pledges vowing to never use illegal drugs. Our school didn't have D.A.R.E., but we had SPECTA, School Program to Educate and Control Drug Abuse, S-P-E-C-D-A. This was a similar program developed by the New York City Board of Education in partnership with the NYPD. Twice a month, two police officers would visit our classroom and give a lecture. Here we learned about substances with cool-sounding names and their various methods of delivery into the body. We learned about what drugs looked like, their effects, and their hazards. To say that Specta had the opposite effect on me is an understatement. My sister Carrie and I, sharing a joint years later, bonded over our mutual response to the Specta lectures. We couldn't wait to try drugs. Maybe we were more impressionable than other kids our age, but I can't imagine we were alone in being charmed by these well-meaning lectures. Seductive-looking powders with names like crack, ice, and angel dust enticed our imaginations, while the various devices needed to ritualistically shoot up or snort these various potions looked like tools of some skilled, secret trade. The specta cops also hurt their case, by framing the shunning of drugs as some act of rugged individualism. Winners didn't take drugs, they told us. Don't follow the pack. Now, while I prided myself on being a nonconformist, I was not a natural leader. 
Being in charge of anything held no appeal for me. To lead seemed boring, a hassle, responsibility. I preferred to remain open to gurus, schemes, and mobs. My response to the perennial question, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump too? Has always been, which friends? How cold is the water? How high is the bridge? A few years ago, I read an article on a website that confirmed what I have long believed, that, statistically speaking, D.A.R.E. and programs like SPECTA actually increase the odds of teenage drug use because of how dangerously enjoyable and attainable they make these substances seem to kids. During the height of my fixation with MTV around 1986 or so, the channel began running commercials by a non-profit group called RAD, Rock Against Drugs. So many acronyms back then. The commercials featured people like Gene Simmons, Bon Jovi, and Ted Nugent, warning young rock fans to not get involved with drugs. These were people I thought very uncool. My heroes Ozzy, Motley Crue, and L.A. Guns were, of course, conspicuously absent. I was 12 years old the first time I smoked pot. I was sitting in Scooter's room, as I did almost every day after school, listening to King Diamond on his Krylon paint-flecked boombox. Scooter, who was older, was already a confirmed pothead. Curious but wary, I'd previously declined a hit from Scooter's joint whenever he offered it to me. To Scooter's eternal credit, and in direct contrast to the ludicrous anti-drug propaganda of the time, I was never, not once, pressured to take drugs, by Scooter or by anyone else. On this day, however, Scooter made a compelling case. We were tangentially discussing music and bands, and began to scan the walls of his room, which were completely papered, like mine, with glossy color photos of bands torn from the pages of Metal Maniacs, Rip, Kerrang, and Faces magazine. You know all these guys smoke pot, announced Scooter, apropos of nothing. Not all of them, I said, not sure I believed it. Hell yeah, dude, Scooter said. He then pointed to the various posters lining the walls. Megadeth, Anthrax, Iron Maiden, Metallica, Testament, Exodus, Sodom, Violence, Venom, Atrocity, Forbidden, Coroner, Napalm Death, all pot smokers, according to Scooter. Death Angel? I asked. Definitely, dude. Sacred Reich? Psh! Look at the dude's eyes in that picture, man! Voivod? I fucking loved Voivod. I still do. And if Scooter was about to tell me they smoked pot, I was ready to go buy a bong. Voivod are probably potheads, reasoned Scooter, mulling it over. But actually, I think those guys are on acid, like, all the time. At which Scooter improvised a very convincing satire of Voivod's elliptical lyrics. And then I fell down the stairs, and I was twisting around, and outer space was an infinite orb, he sang, appropriately spaced out. I laughed. Then we came to a photo of Queensryche. Okay, he conceded, maybe not Queensryche. Now, we liked Queensryche. They were melodic but heavy, cerebral in that Iron Maiden kind of way, but also a band with lyrics that seemed transgressive and possibly evil, so they were okay in our book. But compared to Megadeth and Merciful Fate and Celtic Frost, they were clearly the weenies. I didn't want to be like Queensryche. I wanted to be like demoniacal Dave Mustaine, who gazed at us from Scooter's gallery of anti-heroes, bleary-eyed and casually gripping a bottle of Jack Daniels. I wanted to be like James Hetfield, fresh from the stage, towel around his neck, 
brandishing devil horns and looking debauched. A quick aside. Earlier that year, Scooter had successfully convinced me, using similar rationale, to learn to read guitar tablature as opposed to learning to read music. Those guys we listen to don't read music, man, Scooter said. They all read tablature. Kirk Hammett, Zach Wilde, tablature. This is the reason I never learned to read music. Anyway, back to drugs. Warming to the idea of trying marijuana, I had Scooter explain to me the basics of pot smoking. After being instructed on the proper way to inhale, I took my first nervous hit. I think I expected the effect to be stronger, because mostly I felt hungry and tired, though I had to admit that the music emanating from Scooter's jam box began to sound different. It disassembled in the air, and broke into individual molecules of sound, and suddenly I could distinctly isolate the many components that comprised the song. I got it, at last. Pot was 3D for your ears. It didn't necessarily make me enjoy the music more, I mean, that was impossible, but I suddenly felt I could better understand it. Ralph Ellison, in his novel Invisible Man, poetically and accurately describes this effect as, quote, hearing around the corners. I told Scooter I recognized the scent of marijuana from my visits to Uncle George's room, and Scooter flashed me a knowing, mischievous smile. Clearly, I was in no danger. As for my own feelings about and relationship with illegal drugs, let's just say I would never appear on something like a rad promo unless mandated by the court as part of some plea bargain, as I assume was the case with a coerced-looking Cinderella. And though I have over many years and through a great deal of trial and error come to accept both my mortality and its limitations, and I do consider myself a responsible and discriminating person, I remain defiantly unrepentant about any of the various private chemical experiments I have undertaken throughout my life. Basically what I'm saying is, just say, maybe? Take that, Specta. Scooter was my first older friend, but I would soon meet other older kids who shared my interest in heavy metal. Camp Pouch, a recreational campground on Staten Island, bordering Orbach Lake, is 143 acres of land equipped with cabins, an amphitheater, and a chapel. Used primarily for scouts, the facility operated for many years as a summer day camp. For several weeks every summer, Carrie and I would be bussed off to Camp Pouch, where we would spend our days swimming, making lanyard bracelets, playing kickball, and hiking. The job of camp counselor at Camp Pouch was seductive to teenagers and college students. There was Belinda, the flaky drama studies major who wore a beret. There was Monica, the exotic Dutch exchange student, who was rarely spotted without her ubiquitous Michael Hutchins t-shirt. Then there was the expected rabble of sundry heshers and heathens, the girls who teased their hair into wave-like sculptures and donned silver jewelry, the boys who had earrings and wore Judas Priest t-shirts and played Dungeons and Dragons. These older kids, I decided, would be my friends. Of course, I had to ingratiate myself. Most of my fellow campers wanted to play field hockey or throw water balloons, and I had to find a way to prove to the counselors that I was different. I noticed that the counselors would congregate along the shore during swim time, tasked with little more than making sure nobody drowned in the lake, and would remain on the sand smoking cigarettes and lolling about while the campers swam. It seemed obvious to me that if I wanted to be down with the counselors, I should be hanging out where they hung out. Besides, the water in the lake was brown and gross, and I didn't like having to change into my bathing suit in the barely concealed outdoor wooden partition. The wide gulf between the authorial, dignified coolness of the counselors 
and the subordinate status of the campers was made even plainer by the fact that the counselors, who were not permitted to swim while on duty, remained clothed while the campers wore bathing suits. It's very difficult to look metal in a bathing suit. Unless, you know, that's your gimmick. Anyway, I decided I would henceforth remain clothed and forsake swim time. The first few days ashore, I spent a few hours watching other kids swim, eavesdropping on the counselor's conversations, and waiting for an opening. There's no way I'm missing the King Diamond concert, said one of the counselors. Oh, conspiracy is so awesome, I said, referencing King Diamond's latest album, which was, and remains, indeed, extremely awesome. Conspiracy's good, but it's not as scary as them, said another counselor, referring to the previous King Diamond LP, Conspiracy's prequel. Side note, I didn't agree then, and I don't agree now. Anyway, we continued to talk, and as we did, the literal and figurative space between me and the counselors gradually began to shrink. The circle had physically begun to expand to include me, absorbing me into its orbit, like the gravitational pull of a dwarf moon to a larger planet. The counselors seemed impressed as I began rattling off the song titles and band members of the groups we all liked. I mean, after all, I was no poser. It's so good to have a little headbanger here, one of the girls in the group said to no one in particular. The others nodded in agreement. I would subsequently spend every swim time here on the sidelines, hanging out with these teenagers, who were the coolest people I'd ever met. Belinda took a special interest in me and was my favorite of the counselors. I was unlucky in that the counselor assigned to my own group was a bit of a square. A nice enough guy, but not into metal or anything. I wanted to hang out with Belinda, and increasingly found myself straying from my own group and joining hers. Later, I heard Belinda on the phone with her boyfriend, talking about me. He's like us, she explained. He likes the stuff we like. Noticing me, she confirmed that it was indeed me she was referring to, by shooting me a big smile pointing her finger at the phone's receiver and nodding. I was like them. It was all I wanted to be. On the morning of one of the Camp Pouch talent shows, some older girls approached me as I warmed up on guitar, preparing to perform my very rudimentary and very shitty rendition of Steve Vai's Liberty at the talent show. Show us something cool on the guitar, they asked. I began clumsily tapping the strings in the style of Eddie Van Halen, and watched as they nodded in approval. Impressive, said the lead girl. Tapping on the guitar was an easy enough technique to passably execute, and always seemed to impress people who don't know anything about playing guitar. So are you like a headbanger? One of the girls asked. Yeah, I beamed. And then, after a beat, I'm a hell rat, too. At this, the group of girls giggled, exchanging amused, vaguely pitying expressions. Now, I didn't actually know what a hell rat was. I only knew that Iron Maiden, in the acknowledgments printed inside the booklet for their album Peace of Mind, had thanked all the, quote, headbangers, earth dogs, rivet heads, and hell rats, end quote, that made up their fan base. A hell rat sounded like something I should probably aspire to be. Don't worry, the girl said. You'll grow out of this headbanger stuff. And in a few years, girls are going to love you girls? Unless she meant the great cat or Doro Pesh or possibly Vicky Peterson from the Bengals, I wasn't interested, especially if being adored by girls required me to forsake my precious headbanger stuff. All the same, I felt myself blush. The youngest of the headbanging counselors was Kurt. Officially, Kurt, who was only 14, was a CIT, counselor in training. 
As a CIT, Kurt was free to float from group to group as needed, and so, after swim time, he would often spend the rest of the day with me and my group. Kurt and I ignored everyone else and spent the long summer days talking about music. Together we would make pilgrimages to the camp's trading post to buy marshmallow munchies, which were like off-brand Rice Krispie treats. Kurt had a Walkman and would play me all kinds of metal I'd heard of but not yet heard. He would hand me one earbud and he would take the other, and we'd stand in front of the trading post, eating our marshmallow munchies, listening to candle mass, joined at the ear, occasionally headbanging and pantomiming raking at invisible guitars. Kurt loaned me his paperback copies of the Necronomicon, the hoax-like Sumerian spellbook said to have been ghostwritten by H.P. Lovecraft, and Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible. Despite both books' conspicuous barcodes and availability at every corporate bookstore in the mall, Kurt's dog-eared paperbacks possessed a mystical, occult aura I found irresistible. Later that summer, Kurt was caught vandalizing the Camp Pouch Chapel. He'd spray-painted the Slayer logo alongside the obligatory inverted crosses and pentagrams on the church's stone facade, and was swiftly expelled from Camp Pouch. I never saw him again. There were new adventures back home, too. My new friend Scooter was sourcing LSD from an older girl he knew, and had the rather ingenious idea of cutting the square tabs in half and selling the triangles to acid newbies for the price of a full hit, keeping the other half for himself. A new pool hall had recently opened on Amboy Road and became the ideal base for the enterprising scooter to set up shop. Word spread quickly. I wasn't especially interested in taking acid, which was too scary, or dealing drugs, ditto, but I was happy to hang around and enjoy the pool hall's delicious nachos, which Scooter bought me with his profits. Scooter and I soon began using his drug money to attend concerts together. I finally got to see my beloved creator, with support from a brand new band called Biohazard. Unfortunately, I couldn't see much from my vantage point against the venue's back wall, where I safely sequestered myself from the extremely violent-looking circle pit at the front of the stage. My guitar teacher at the time was a college kid named Jonathan, who wanted to teach me music theory and all that Mel Bay, Michael Row the Boat Ashore bullshit, but all I wanted to do was shred. Scooter convinced me to ditch Jonathan and to start taking lessons with his guitar teacher, Ron. This way, Scooter told me, he and I could be learning the same things, and in tandem. I was easily convinced, as Scooter's guitar prowess easily eclipsed mine. Ron was a cornball, the kind of man who lived for puns on words like Gouda and Fungi. That's a Gouda cheese! His qualifications as a guitar instructor remain somewhat elusive to me even today, though he did regularly perform in wedding bands with his then-wife, and seemed to at least understand the basic rudiments of heavy metal music. My lessons with Ron consisted of me bringing him whatever song I wanted to learn that week, and Ron listening to it and transcribing it for me in tablature, occasionally showing me little tips on the proper way to play the trickier passages. One week I'd learned Slayer's War Ensemble, the next the riff to Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl to impress Uncle George. This was, of course, the very definition of shortcut learning. I quickly mastered all the tricks like palm muting, tapping, and tremolo picking, I could convincingly play the riffs of Metallica and Slayer songs, and even some of the less challenging solos, but it would be years before I could form a simple D minor chord in the guitar's first position. It occurred to me far too late that Scooter and I could have just as easily transcribed the songs ourselves, but we were young and gullible, 
And besides, we were getting better, if only superficially. I developed bad, even tasteless guitar habits that persist to this day. Ask anyone with whom I've been in a band, and they will confirm this fact. My default setting is to play everything like a third-rate thrash metal rhythm guitarist. Scooter, on the other hand, was a natural talent, with a very discerning ear. While most metal fans we knew bowed to the consensus that the greatest guitar players were either speedy shredders like Marty Friedman and Dimebag Daryl, or classically trained virtuosos like Joe Satriani and Ingve Malmsteen, Scooter's unlikely main dude was Christian Hayward of obscure UK thrash band Zentrix, who, like Scooter, played a red Charvel. Scooter, despite his ignorance of music theory, pointed out to me the intricacies of Hayward's phrasing, his note choices, his tone. He then played for me a testament song we both loved, zeroing in on and attempting to demystify the playing of the band's lead guitarist Alex Skolnick, who was, Scooter said, a better guitarist than the more venerated and popular Kirk Hammett. Once I was able to experience this music through Scooter's ears, I began hearing differently, and I began doing my own deep listening. Slayer albums very thoughtfully noted in the CD booklet which of the band's two guitarists was playing which solo, and using this information, I was able to easily determine the differences in the styles of Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman. King was, relatively speaking, the more traditional player. Hanneman was noisier, wilder, bolder. I now heard similarly intrepid out qualities in the playing of Trey Azigthoth of Morbid Angel, who I already worshipped, though, now with the help of Scooter's ear training, I now had better, more musical reasons to genuflect. Scooter and I decided to form a band, which we called the Scumbags. Part Cro-Mags, part Beavis and Butthead, the Scumbags was a low-stakes hardcore band that began as a diversion from our more serious guitar studies. Whenever we'd get tired of practicing pentatonic scales and the material we were learning from Ron and trying to get good, we'd therapeutically resort to this ersatz group where we'd allow ourselves to improvise and jam. It was very much in the spirit of my musical experiments in my basement, but transplanted to Scooter's Garage. The scumbag's body of work began inauspiciously with a song titled Shit. We recruited our friend Davey to rap at a makeshift drum kit made of cardboard boxes and textbooks, while Scooter made deedly-dee soloing sounds using the Floyd Rose tremolo system on his Charvel, and I palm-muted distorted chunky riffs. We joined our voices to sing the song's only word ad nauseum, adding the occasional ad-lib when the spirit moved us, like fucking shit. The natural follow-up to shit was fuck, followed eventually by tremolo shit, 4 by 4 fuck, porn on the cob, and, my personal favorite, animals that live under the sea, inspired by the title of one of the hardcover books on which Davy had been drumming. The music of the scumbags was almost entirely improvised, 
the lyrics free associated, with only the song titles determined in advance. This was rebellion at its most harmless but most cretinous, the behavior of puerile, pubescent boys without any girls around to witness or hold a mirror up to their folly. Scooter, who was two years older than me, was already watching porn and smoking heroic amounts of dope, but I was still apprehensive about those sorts of things, and I contented myself with singing lyrics about impalements, disembowelments, and serial killers, no doubt inspired by the then-new Cannibal Corpse. Each Scumbags album, there were four in all, was recorded in a single day. Deciding we needed a band photo, we asked my mom to take a portrait of our group decked in flannel and the obligatory black band t-shirts, holding up a spray-painted sign bearing the group's logo. I've posted this on my Patreon page and on Twitter. The Scumbags tapes were obviously never distributed or even heard by anyone outside the band, until just now, that is, though cover art was carefully drawn, liner notes meticulously written, and thank you lists dutifully compiled, as was the tradition. By the fourth album, the scumbags had lost the plot. Recalling the earlier Party People water show episode, the group's reach began to exceed its grasp, and the creative differences of its members grew insurmountable and impossible to ignore. I was increasingly focused on making what I thought were clever songs about gory eviscerations and the loathing of authority figures, but over the course of our recording sessions, Davy and Scooter began to frequently use the red light of the recorder as an excuse to document their increasingly vicious play fights. There was something about their gleeful bloodlust that made me uncomfortable. The two boys seemed to really enjoy attacking each other mid-song, ramming drumsticks and guitar headstocks into one another's chests. Though both boys laughed as they fought, the growing cruelty of the brawl suggested something sinister. For whatever reason, they rarely turned on me during these fights. I was decidedly not the fighter of the group, and I can only assume wouldn't have been as fun to thwack across the back of the thighs with a wiffle ball bat. As for the music, I tried to keep it together, but most of our songs now ended with the sound of a loud crack of some object against a body part, someone screaming, Ah, you bastard! It might have made for someone's idea of compelling uh, audio verite or amusing performance art, but as music, it was a drag. Scooter soon introduced me to the joys and wonders of plastic explosives. $1.50 got you an M80, while for $3 you could purchase a Blockbuster. According to neighborhood lore, a Blockbuster was the equivalent of a quarter stick of dynamite, and so some of the older and more daring kids we knew designed ways to connect the fuses to rig blasts for the ages. Still, a single Blockbuster could do plenty of damage, and was reputedly capable of blowing your hand clean off. It also possessed enough firepower to send a municipal public mailbox violently jutting up a foot from where it sank into the concrete, blowing a giant hole in the bottom and shooting burning mail and shrapnel all over the street. I wish I could report that I did not partake in this mischief. Ruining credit card bills, birthday cards from grandma, legal documents, and packages was not in keeping with my parents' golden rule of not fucking people over but there was something exhilarating about hearing the sound explode from behind you as you ran as fast as you could away from the deafening blast. Also, I was 12. We purchased our explosives from Clark. It was tacitly understood that Clark's family was, in the parlance, mobbed up, and that the sale of illegal fireworks was Clark's nascent role in the family business, perhaps providing something of a gangland training ground for the eventual hustle of narcotics or weaponry. Scooter and I would buy our M80s and Blockbusters from Clark, 
and then take them to the deserted beach, which served as our own private Yucca Flats blasting site. Learning that the fuses of the projectiles would remain lit even when submerged in water, we'd hurl the live explosives into the murky bog, and then watch as bits of the ecosystem exploded from the water surface like a hideous geyser, raining debris everywhere as we took cover behind the sharp and slimy rocks, cackling like mad. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetoadzone. Next week, I will tell you all about the time I actually cried in the middle of a shopping plaza over my inability to purchase a death metal tape. Also, more juvenile delinquency, getting dunked on by the great cat, and more. Stay tuned. This is The Toth Zone. <laughs>